0: Welcome to this Pro-CE podcast on expert discussion on the evolving treatment landscape in ovarian cancer, pharmacist considerations for optimizing care. My name is Amy Lee Indorf. I'm a pharmacist at UW Medicine and Fred Hutch Cancer Center, and I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Hayward from OU Health.
1: Pleasure to be here. Excellent. Let's discuss.
0: (laughs) So Sarah, just right off the bat, what PARP inhibitor are you seeing in the upfront maintenance setting? You know, yeah.
1: obviously, with the FDA, with the indication and guideline indications, you can use Naraprib across the board for anybody or Caprib as well. But um, I think the physicians are just um, so much more experienced and comfortable with the Laprib at my institution that that's what we we see the majority of. What about you?
0: We are seeing a Laprib more so than the other two as well. Yeah, absolutely. What are the decision making factors that go
1: into you guys deciding which PARP inhibitor you might want to use in that setting?
0: Yeah. Really looks at their, if their germline BRCA mutated, whether or not they're homologous repair deficient, and then in you know those considerations to add it with bevacizumab really depend on what they received in their upfront adjuvant or neoadjuvant treatment. Did they get bevacizumab? If they didn't meet those requirements to get bevacizumab, then we wouldn't continue bevacizumab in that maintenance setting.
1: Absolutely. And I think all those absolutely go into consideration, uh, especially for for access, you know, making sure you follow guidelines and FDA indications. So we also, we have to consider the, the patient's experience with that frontline chemotherapy. Some uh, ACET, they do great, they go through, they have no delays, they have no dose reductions. And those other patients, even in the frontline setting, for whatever reason, can struggle. For instance, if, if we've noticed a lot of struggles with, say, thrombocytopenia, we're a little bit leery, of of niraparib, just because, you know, we have seen those drops that you discussed where all they're normal and all of a sudden they're less than 10,000, which is a very scary experience for everybody. Yeah. So and yeah, we taking that it, into consideration as well.
0: We haven't seen it quite yet, but I agree if that patient's already struggling with hematologic toxicities up front and they're not germline BRCA mutated, Rucaparib mm-hmm. might be a good option based on yeah, the most mono data. No, I agree. What other common adverse effects are you seeing with PARP inhibitors?
1: Well, you really hit on a lot of them from a hematologic standpoint. Um, we see more anemia with the laparib. We see more thrombocytopenia with the niraparib. We haven't encountered any pneumonitis, which, you know, knock on wood, we, we, we won't as well. We've had some patients had that have encountered some of the cardiac issues. We can see sometimes with niraparib, like a little bit elevated blood pressure. We've had patients with palpitations.
0: And I think those unique side effects are really where we struggle a little bit more. You know, we talk about all the hematologic toxicities and fatigue and nausea quite extensively yeah. in our upfront counseling, but haven't seen as much of that hypertension. We unfortunately have had a case of pneumonitis, but some of those other ones that are harder to characterize. So we've seen. Mm-hmm dyskizia months into therapy. Yep. Um, and those are really hard for patients because it impacts their quality of life for years while they're on this medicine. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um,
0: Insomnia is a little bit more straightforward because you can just switch to morning administration. But just being aware of those unique adverse side effects and, and knowing that it's a possibility with these agents, it really helps patients feel confidence in our management and our team.
1: No, I agree. That's great. And I would just say across the board, probably the biggest thing we see, regardless of product, is fatigue. And it's a big counseling point for patients that what's a reasonable expectation for fatigue? You know, that we still want you to carry on with your life. We don't want you to feel miserable and stuck in bed for the next two to three years of your life. So, you know, you have to let us know what's going to be tolerable for you. And so I think that's really, really a, a key point for patients. And, um, You know, just letting them know that it it gets better with time. They become accustomed to it. And I think they forget after a while for those patients that we have had complete their PARP inhibitor maintenance after the two to three years and they stop, they go, oh, wow. (laughs) I think they're excited to be done, but also they kind of, they get some of that, some of that pep back in their step.
0: Yep. Similarly, that's what we're seeing too. And it kind of dovetails into how we talk about adherence for patients Mm -hmm. um, in our first education session. Really, it's just keep in touch with us. Let us know what's going on. Because even something like fatigue, there's lots of different things that can contribute to fatigue. Absolutely. And so I always ask them to let us be the detective to figure out yeah, what's going good. on. Because um, anemia in those first five to six cycles can be a huge contributing factor. And yes, so maybe we just need to address that. Absolutely. Um, to make sure they can stay on the therapy without any adherence issues or self, <laughs> self-titrating self of medications.
1: Absolutely, and Amy, at your institution, um, just to make sure that everyone has access to the medications that are going to give them the best outcome, what what do you all have in place to ensure that the uninsured or those that have high copays, what do you guys do for those that patient population?
0: So we have a fantastic specialty pharmacy billing team, and they really look into all the options for a reasonable copay cost for our patients. So we do and help enroll in the patient assistance programs that are available through the manufacturer. We do have some institutional charity care options. But really, in my counseling, I always just say, you call the specialty pharmacy and they give you a copay that's out of your budget. Let us know. Don't just give over your credit card information. Let us see if there are options for you if we can try a different agent, anything like that, because again, this is maintenance therapy for years. So financial toxicity is, just as important as all the other toxicities we've talked about. What about you, Sarah?
1: I agree with all those. And We have that same setting in place. We do have a specialty pharmacy on site, which is really fantastic to work with. We have pharmacists whose job is to help us monitor and manage these patients who are on oral therapy, not only in our clinic, but across all of the disease sites here at our cancer center. But um, also having staff in place, we have technicians whose sole job is to help us with those prior auth. To help us with getting those patients signed up for those programs if necessary. Like you said, manufacture copay, manufacture a free drug. Uh, we have an in-house grant program as well that patients can qualify for. And even there's private grants out there for specific disease sites. If you can, if you can catch them when funds are available, but we always make sure that the patient is aware. I tell them, don't worry about it. We will help you out and we will make sure you get the medication that you need. So yes don't pay that $3,000 copay. <laughs> Most of them, I couldn't even if they wanted me to. So yeah, Mervituximab. How many patients would you say you guys have going on Mervituximab now?
0: Less than 10, okay. um, somewhere between five and 10. How about you? Yeah,
1: About the same. Yeah. It was really interesting when that came to market, all the testing that went into seeing if those patients had that folate receptor alpha. we actually ran out of reagent at some point in time and we had some delays. We're absolutely starting to see more of that, and um, we used it quite a bit here in clinical trials. So we have some familiarity here with our Phase One program and late phase research. But I think the physicians are really excited to have it as an option in that platinum-resistant setting. That's not something quite as cytotoxic, is what we can see, um, and hopefully with some some good outcomes for these patients who are in a bad way with their cancer.
0: There's a lot of excitement here too, and I think. Yes. There's always drug updates as we make these presentations, but yes. as that more confirmatory phase three data comes out, I think that excitement's gonna grow. And one of the issues we've run into just in building those treatment plans, you know, other than the testing that you've talked about, is uh, that adjusted ideal body weight calculation, just educating <laughs> yes. everyone that it's a little bit different. And in particular, yes. we you know, had a, a group discussion about what to do with patients who are low body weight. Maybe their mm-hmm. actual weight is lower than their adjusted ideal. And so in our institution, we use their actual weight. If it's lower than their adjusted ideal body weight, what are you all doing?
1: Uh, We're doing the exact same thing. Uh, This Mm -hmm. has only happened in one or two patients, but Mm -hmm. that that's what we do. It makes sense logically for us. And so, yeah, if their actual is less than an adjusted ideal, Mm -hmm. then we will go with their actual body weight. And we're getting ready to transition our our electronic medical record, but the current one that we use for ordering actually doesn't calculate that for us. So we have to be very specific in our documentation about the weights that we're using. We spell out very clearly the math that got us to the number that we cut to, to make sure that everybody is on the same page about what the dose needs to be so that we're following guidelines on that medication. When patients get to the setting and we talk about ocular toxicities, that's something that's I guess, strange and new in the world of (laughs) oncology medications uh, overall. What is your approach to patient education and helping them go through the process of those exams and making sure they have their medication and making sure they know what they're supposed to do when?
0: That's usually the first thing that patients want to talk about because it Mm is, you know, they've gone through many lines of treatment. And so this eye care toxicity is like the newest one for them. And our patients are very savvy and they've done a lot of reading about this eye toxicity and so things that we've done systematically are to build the eye care prescriptions into our treatment plans so that everyone gets the same instructions and gets those prescriptions. We have supportive care medication calendar built out for them as well to really outline it, um, and that gets uploaded into tr- the chart so people can see it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then
0: yeah, and then we've done a lot of education about it. How about you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's the same and. In the setting of gynecologic oncology, our our first ADC that we really got to use um, to market was was tisotamab in the cervical cancer setting. And uh, so a little bit different in the eye care toxicity setting. And I think it's important to let everyone know, as we probably will see more antibody drug conjugates, they do not all have ocular toxicities. This is specific to the agent. So just as a, by the way, ADC does not equal ocular toxicity, but You know, the other thing is making sure your patient has access to some sort of eye care specialist or professional, making sure they're aware it doesn't have to be uh, an ophthalmologist, which sometimes are a little bit harder to get into than an an optometrist. They can perform these same tasks and making sure that that eye care professional is exactly what you need so that you can get the information to treat the patient properly. And I I agree that these are new toxicities for us and having to assess it, because we'll get the notes from our optometrist <laughs> colleagues or ophthalmologists with a bunch of acronyms and things. I'm like, I don't know what that means, is that a yes or a no? So I don't know if you've encountered that same thing, but uh, you can actually find, there's an um, ocular assessments guide on the manufacturer's website for eye care professionals to explain what we're after and why we're doing this um, to sort of st- to streamline the process so that we're getting the information for what we need for patients.
0: Yes, the learning curve is high for Mm -hmm. the ocular toxicities for me, Um, but it's been nice compared to some other ADCs where this one does open a wider field. It's been harder to get uh, appointments with any healthcare provider, really. So being able to get one with an optometrist who can do a slit lamp eye exam, and I always encourage our patients just to book out Appointments every six weeks times four so that you know everything is set up and ready to go.
1: No, I agree with you. And then just also knowing that, that there's different approaches to ocular toxicity. And I think also a big thing in patient education that maybe I wasn't so great at at first is taking away some demystifying the ocular toxicities for the patient, not making it sound so scary. It's just, if you follow this regimen with your drops, if you follow this regimen with your preservative-free eye drops, If you let us know as soon as things start to maybe seem weird, whether it's scratching or itching or redness or blurry vision, whatever the case, you're not going to go blind. And I think because that's the initial conclusion, I feel like some of our patients jump to with this medication, which isn't true at all. What do you think?
0: That's great. I I like that term demystifying because that is a lot of those, the the questions all end up going towards the, will this be permanent? If something happens, will this be permanent? And the trial did show that most of it was reversible and that the risk for these are a lot less with the steroid regimen, and, and that's why the steroid regimen was developed. So I think just as a whole field, we're learning more about these ocular toxicities and ADCs and, and feeling a little bit more comfortable in using and discussing these with our patients in a less yes. scary way.
1: Yes, I agree with that.
0: Uh, well, Sarah, what do you see on the horizon for treatment in ovarian cancer? There are
1: lots of different things, looking at things like what if we give part our- Maintenance twice. What about the addition of immunotherapy agents? Uh, we have the option, probably, uh, depending on the data, to see another antibody drug conjugate come to treatment in ovarian cancer. We also have kind of a unique treatment option. Um, TTF, it's tumor treatment fields, and which is really really not drug-related um, in that regard, except for, you know, you would see this this is looking at the, the innovate trials that are using the TTF plus paclitaxel. So, you know, I encourage everyone to read about the tumor treatment fields. There has been some studies done in glioblastoma. And so in the ovarian cancer setting, which we can always use more options in the ovarian cancer setting, especially in the recurrent setting and especially in that platinum resistant setting. And so it's a low frequency sort of electric field that attacks rapidly dividing cells or affects rapidly dividing cells is what I should say. And um, leaves those normal cells alone, which you know, when we think about traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy, that's that's not what it is. That's one of my first education points for patients. I'm like, these are chemotherapies that attack rapidly dividing cells. Your side effects or side effects are a lot because they don't know the difference between a normal and a cancerous rapidly dividing cell. So some of the the TTF tumor treatment bills is to leave those normal cells alone. So that'll be some some interesting outcomes to see from that.
0: It's amazing to see just new treatment modalities cropping up in this setting. We need them. Well, thank you, Sarah. I think this yeah. was it's been an awesome conversation to see what each of us do and experience that it's nice to hear when it's the same and learn from each other. Yes, um, thank, you absolutely. To the, <laughs> thank you to the audience so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast on the evolving treatment landscape in ovarian cancer. Please visit proce.com for additional information about ovarian cancer. Thank you, Amy.